I don't think it's enough for social media companies to back their hands up and just say that they're, you know, neutral. There has to be some sort of moderation. There are pretty serious real world consequences to the discussions happening on those platforms. What are you going to do about it? Hello, everyone. I'm Morgan Moncada with Imagine Human. Today, we are joined by Scott Kanye, a doctoral student in the neuroscience department at the City University of New York. In this episode, Scott shares his work combining morality and neuroscience. He discusses his own philosophy on morality, its basis in neuroscience, and how social media can influence and exacerbate our morality and emotions. Scott is passionate about communicating this work and has been contributing to scientific journalism since 2015, writing for publications including Nautilus on topics at the intersection of science and business. get started, uh, I'd love to learn uh, a little bit more about you and kind of start off by just hearing from you, you know, where you are at right now and kind of your path to getting there. Um, why don't we get started with that? Okay, sure. So uh, right now I'm, I'm wrapping up the first year of, of this doctoral program. And um, the way it works in the first year is that they send you through uh, a series of rotations in different laboratories. So uh, you sort of pick and choose two or three different laboratories doing whatever you're interested in. Um, and the idea is that you get a little bit of experience and then you get a better idea of what you want to work on long term. Um, so just in the last month, I, I figured out where I'll be for the rest of my time in the program. Um, and yeah, I learned a lot of interesting things in the past year. Um, and though my focus now is is morality, it, for a long time, I wasn't sure that's wasn't sure that that was what I was going to be studying. Um, I originally wanted to study something closer to developmental psychopathology, so looking at mental health from a sort of developmental perspective, um, the social and environmental influences and the genetic influences on uh, one's predisposition for anxiety and depression and all sorts of other um, mental illnesses and and, and behaviors. Uh, and sort of as a, as a tangent to that, uh, I, I stumbled upon morality, sort of, sort of luckily, um, because it turns out there are a lot of connections between things like um, aggression, psychopathy, um, and various other personality traits. There are connections between those and one's sense of morality that I had no idea existed. Um, so once I realized that there were all those connections, sort of this like emotional instinctive underpinning to one's sense of morality, I was, I was hooked. So I just decided to look more into it. And uh, right now I'm, I'm sort of laying the groundwork for future projects. So again, I'm, I'm just at the end of my first year. I don't have uh, a whole lot of work behind me to discuss, but I'm really excited to, to dive more into it. What kind of prompted your interest originally in this entire field from you know, psychology to emotions, to morality and neuroscience. How did you kind of bridge that gap? Um, so my background was more in, um, so I studied neuroscience in, in undergrad and um, I had a lot of experience in, in labs that had to do with um, molecular and cellular neuroscience. And I guess one of the biggest reasons I sort of um, shifted gears from, from what I might call like the more nitty gritty and um, um, 
sort of granular aspects of neuroscience and toward the more um, maybe interdisciplinary and wider in scope. Not to say that the, the, the molecular and cellular isn't critically important, but just to say that a topic like morality is, uh, I guess, a little bit more general. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I just wanted to relate what I was learning in my neuroscience classes and, and my experiences in the lab to my everyday experience a little bit more. Um, because I became curious about, um, curious on like a more um, casual level about many of the questions that I, I want to try to answer in my research. Like, what is the role of emotion in decision making, for example? When I make a decision, what are the factors that are influencing it? What am I basing my confidence in my decision off of? And um, So I guess it was this drive to really not only relate neuroscience to my own experience, but to, to be able to conduct research that I thought would help other people relate to neuroscience more. Because I find that a topic like morality is, is just great for engaging people in conversation because they, I mean, everyone from a young age is intensely interested in like mm -hmm. whether other people are doing right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's this innate, extremely powerful force. And it's bizarre, I think, just how much we care about that. And um, so, yeah, I guess the, the biggest idea was just relating it to my experience. And then with that, helping other people connect to it as well. I, I believe I reached out to you originally after reading your article about uh, Twitter and social media in general and how social media mm -hmm. can exacerbate emotions. And um, even though I don't think you really explicitly said so, uh, there was like a somewhat of an implicit argument that there is the, the onus on social media and media in general to start uh, paying attention to these emotions, which I think is you know, tying in the research that you and your mentors are doing with um, this writing that is your is your passion. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think you're kind of making that relevant. But if you could talk a little bit more. I see. Okay. Um, yeah, so you, you mentioned that uh, there was an implicit argument in my article. I, I sometimes try to um, stop from editorializing in those things <laughs> and just present the research, but... Yeah, my, my instincts got the best of me there. I, 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 so, so basically the idea in that article is that um, the tweets uh, that, that are most likely to spread, or not the tweets that are most likely to spread, but tweets that contain moral emotional language. Um, so basically moral uh, emotions are, are the emotions that are related to our sense of right and wrong. So like shame, embarrassment, guilt, pride, um, the things that reflect our sense of right and wrong, both directed internally and toward others. And tweets that contain moral emotional language, like tweets that contain the words I just mentioned, like shame, guilt, pride, and things like uh, faith, safety, fighting, anything that implies like a struggle toward, toward equality or a struggle between good and bad, um, all of those things make a tweet, a tweet significantly more likely to spread in a social network. And not only that, but they spread rapidly within what we would call echo chambers. So um, Billy Brady, who's the author of the paper that I, that I cited, they, he had this great uh, visualization in the paper, which was a, a plot of all of the tweets that they used for their study 
all the tweets that contain moral emotional language. And they were coded blue for left-leaning tweets, red for right-leaning tweets. And yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful and a little bit depressing because you see this massive web that has red and blue. It's all interconnected and there are very few connections between the clusters. And I mean, as if we didn't already know before, yeah, like we're just shouting at each other and at the wall, depending on what your politics are. Um, so the, 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 where I wanted to take that article after presenting this research, uh, and the article was based in large part, I want to mention also on, uh, on an article by Molly Crockett called uh, Digital Outrage in the Digital Age, where she um, talks about a lot of the, the things that I'm talking about um, much more eloquently than I do. And she's talking about how, yeah, just the, the sort of interplay between users and social media as it relates to, to our moral, our sense of moral outrage. Um, and basically where I wanted to take that article was that, um, I, I guess the implicit thesis was, this is all out there. I don't think social media companies can can claim that they're just neutral arbiters of discourse because we've seen time and time again i mean it's the internet once the internet gets a hold of a neutral platform uh it, it rarely stays neutral for long unless there's some sort of moderation or something i mean if you think of like what happens with reddit and the trolls and i mean 4chan there are all sorts of examples of just like a seemingly hands-off forum for discussion turning into uh, something a lot worse than that. Not to say Reddit or 4chan is bad, but you know, you spent 10 minutes on some of the worst, darkest corners of those websites you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I guess my, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that it's, it's a pretty clear trend that algorithms on Twitter and several other platforms are really whether they were deliberately designed to or just sort of trended that way with time, their current function is to just shovel provocative content right. toward our faces. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I don't think it's enough for social media companies to back their hands up and just say that they're, you know, neutral. There has to be some sort of moderation um, because it's not just arguments about gun control or arguments about taxes. Uh, there are pretty serious real-world consequences to the discussions happening on those platforms. Uh, one example is that the UN cited Facebook as uh, a, at least a partial cause or uh, aggravator of the genocide that's going on in Myanmar. So it's it's a quite a serious issue. And um, I mean, the the most of what we've heard from Facebook, there was this one executive who said, "Like, oh, I'm, I'm losing sleep over it." Like, well, you, people are dying. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're, well, like, you're really compassionate, yeah. man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what are you going to do about it, right? So, I guess I, I wanted to to sort of present present the data and then um, argue that, yeah, I mean, we have to shift the discussion toward what these large, extremely powerful companies are going to do about what the about the practices that are objectively happening on their platforms. This makes you wonder, if you spend so much time on social media expressing your interests and emotion, all of which is data being collected, 
then how much of this could be used to manipulate you, intentionally or unintentionally? How much of this data do you think is being generated, harvested, and sold by social media giants? We're, we, we haven't seen much, much investigation like this of social media specifically. I think this, this study contrasts with a lot of what's been happening in the, in the field of moral psychology and, and philosophy in that it's, it's directly confronting where discussions of morality are, are really happening. I mean, a lot of moral, moral psychology and neuroscience studies happen like, you know, in hypothetical situations or like when you're in a laboratory and someone asks you like, okay, do you want to kill five people or one? Like, whatever. Um, but this is actually, I mean, it's really cool, I think, because it's actually in confronting the issue directly in, in real world scenarios. These are actual tweets they analyzed. Um, so I think I think because of this paper and several other papers like it, we're going to see a lot of I, I, I hope to see a sort of shift toward real world moral scenarios. Although they're hard to set up in practice, but um, that should be the goal that we all strive for in the field. Yeah, it's kind of modernization of research, kind of catching up directly with modern real world applications in the industry. Right? Um, right. I think that's always the hard thing to do um, for research, but, and, and perhaps um, we might not be able to talk about this in the scope of here, but what, if you were to kind of switch gears and like snap your fingers um, and kind of be able to provide solutions for uh, how the state is, maybe whether that's Twitter or Facebook or just more general, you know, the general social media, how would you provide those solutions and what would you suggest, I guess? It is a very sticky problem, um, very complex, I'm sure, but what are some high-level solutions that you would think of? You're totally right that it is, <laughs> it is super sticky. Um, and I mean, I, I think that these companies are probably interested in you know, doing the right thing ultimately, if they can mm -hmm. or if they know how, and maybe you're the right person or the researchers that you work with are the right people to help them understand this better. Maybe. Um, I think one thing that comes to mind immediately is, is, is just moderation. Um, you could have people overlook, oversee what's, what's happening on your platform. Um, Reddit did it. Um, there's a great piece by um, Andrew Marantz in The New Yorker about Reddit um, trying to basically detoxify its discussion boards. And I mean, it's it's difficult because you do have to editorialize and you do have to decide okay like so this comment about like killing people is bad we're going to delete this but this one that seems more like a joke we're going to leave that be like there are a lot of difficult decisions but i would say for the most part it's something that you can standardize um from what i've seen i'm not an expert in you know overseeing trolls on reddit but um i think moderation is, is one way around it and also just listening to, to people and hearing what they want. Um, Twitter has that open call that I mentioned in the piece, open call for how to improve conversational health, um, whatever that means. I'm not really sure, but so at least they're trying. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then Facebook to try to, maybe it was like just a, a face-saving effort. Maybe they actually care about their users. I don't know, but they did have the whole effort to remove news from their news feed. Mm -hmm. So 
I would say, I mean, I don't use Facebook a whole lot, but just on, you know, from, from occasional visits, I've, I've, I've noticed that it's just, it does feel like a slightly less provocative environment, which is, is nice. Um, but these are all just, I think, band-aids. I think they're going to have to figure out something a lot better than that. And it's up to us as users to hold them to that. Mm-hmm. And so as long as more people recognize that there is an issue, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a product, ultimately. That's how they view themselves. Yeah. So if consumers change their behavior and demand something, they'll have to listen. Yeah. So that's really interesting because I think we're all users of social media. It seems that for, for me for the longest time, um, and maybe this is the same for both of you, um, I was very passive in my interaction with social media. So I didn't really judge or curate in my own mind the kind of content that I was receiving, and I almost took it naively. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a few years ago and last year especially, there's a lot of news about fake news and a lot of realization that, you know, the content on here cannot be trusted. So what type of recommendation would you have for, you know, users and lay users who might not have a discerning eye and might not catch the difference between a joke or something that's serious and offensive and should be reported? Uh, I mentioned in the piece the idea that, like, attention is a, is a commodity. And I think it's, it sounds like Orwellian and dystopian that, like... <laughs> Every aspect of our lives is slowly being commodified. Um, but I think there's also, you can, there's definitely a flip side to it, which is it's empowering to treat your attention as a commodity. And I think the more you recognize that where you invest your attention has ramifications, both for yourself and for the world around you, it's sort of uh, a responsibility. Um, and I think if you, a tip I would offer is just is to view it as a responsibility to yourself and to others. If you're on Twitter and you just you find it this like cesspool of outrage, then just don't use Twitter that much. I mean, it can be hard, but invest your attention elsewhere because they will respond if if, if users stop viewing their platform. Um, so yeah, I think I think just viewing viewing your attention as something that you have control over and acknowledging that. There are powerful forces trying to, you know, use your attention as much as possible. Maybe not use, just not like an exhaustible resource, but they're, they're trying to make the most out of your attention. Um, acknowledging that and acknowledging that you have control over your attention, I think, is, is a responsibility, but it's very empowering. And I think you can, um, you can do a lot of good by just recognizing that power that you have. Perhaps we might, um, maybe we can switch gears and kind of talk about um, kind of other work you've worked on and how uh, I think a very interesting piece um, that I've come across of yours is how you can persuade people. Um, It's your uh, piece on Nautilus. So it's persuade someone looking to look emotional by looking emotional. Um, And can you kind of talk about your work there and, and what kind of instigated you to come up with that article? And Sure. So the idea for that article came from uh, the conversation with, with Dave Pizarro that I mentioned. He's the author of the study that I cited. Um, 
And sort of just like offhand, he, he mentioned this, this anecdote about Michael Dukakis. And um, I wasn't alive during that, that election, but it just struck me as a really interesting anecdote, like a really powerful illustration of, of the effect that, that they demonstrated in their, in their study. And I can just sort of recap the, the study. Um, so yeah, they, they found that people who made moral judgments based on intuition, not by reasoning, were found to be, or at least rated by people as more trustworthy and more moral. So basically, are you, are you familiar with the, uh, the trolley problem at all? So it's this like classic um, moral psychology experiment or thought experiment. It's the idea that, uh, so you're standing at, at, a, at a rail control center and there's a runaway trolley headed toward five people on the tracks. Um, and if it continues on its present course, those five people will be hit and killed. Um, but you're in front of a lever and you can pull the lever and the, the trolley will be diverted onto another track where one person is standing. All six of these people are unaware. You can't alert them. So it's basically take no action and five people die or take action and, and one person dies. Um, and so there are, there are all sorts of variations of this issue in, in the study of moral psychology. Um, and they're called high conflict moral dilemmas because they're thought to contain this conflict between um, two schools of thought in morality, which is utilitarianism, which is basically all that matters in a moral decision are the consequences. What can we do to foster the best outcomes? So the utilitarian would say in this dilemma, five greater than one, okay, pull the lever, easy. Uh, the contrasting school of thought is, is deontology, which is the idea that the, the intrinsic rightness or wrongness of acts is, is all that matters. So like, is it right to deliberately kill someone? No. So then you don't pull the lever. Um, so they're called high conflict dilemmas. And there's a lot of research that has shown that, that utilitarianism is associated with um, sort of like cold, deliberative, higher order cognitive processes. And deontology, this, this focus on the intrinsic goodness of the act, is associated with emotion and sort of instinctive processes. And the study that, that I mentioned in the article by, by Dave Pizarro is, is showing that people who make those sort of deontological instinct-based moral judgments are just likable, more likable to the average person. And they're perceived as more moral and more trustworthy. Um, and the way that relates to, to Michael Dukakis in the election is, is that basically he was asked this, what I think to be a pretty cheap gotcha question. Um, but he was asked whether he would favor capital punishment if, uh, if his wife were raped and murdered. Would he favor capital punishment for the offender? And without missing a beat, he just said no. He said, no, I wouldn't, and continued with his answer. And I, I, I wish I could have been there for that moment, but I, I mentioned in the piece how like there were reporters who, who were there who just said they sensed it instantly, like it was over. Like he just came across as really cold, calculating and sure like he stuck to his principles but he might be a psychopath who feels no emotion so we're not going to vote for him um, and by many accounts that's pretty much how it went down um, 
so I, I wanted to raise the question in the piece of, of like, is, is this how we really want to be? Is that like, do we really want to respond to moral intuition? Um, it seems to be like an instinctive, like evolution-based uh, inclination to judge people on their moral intuition. But there are many cases where that seems not to be the right choice. Um, so I just wanted to, to, to put that point out there, that there's something in our evolution that we might want to reconsider. Hmm. Um, can you give us examples of how that might not actually be the case and that that framework does not necessarily serve in our favor? Um, so one example that comes to mind is, is psychopaths. So uh, these are people who are, are sort of emotionally blunted. Um, they don't have the full range of emotional experience that the average person does. And they will use carefully learned uh, emotional expression to, to deceive people. So they'll be able to win your trust just by appearing to rely on this intuition, whether it be moral intuition or, or other types of just emotional expression. Um, another example where, where moral intuition might not serve us well is um, empathy. So uh, Paul Bloom is a psychologist who has this, this great book, um, Against Empathy, and he argues that um, just because of how instinctive and, and how tribal empathy is, or tends to be at least, um, it's something that we shouldn't rely 100% on when making moral decisions. So like he talks about how um, our, our sense of empathy is biased in so many different ways. So like we're more likely to be empathetic toward people who are the same skin color, the same um, country, the same nationality or, or, or ethnic background or uh, people who are good looking, all these sorts of factors that are influencing our sense of empathy that we probably wouldn't want to if we could think about it carefully. Um, so that's one way that, I mean, it, moral intuition tells us that like an act committed by someone who's more similar to us or um, for whatever reason is in our in-group is more morally permissible than one that would be committed by someone that we're less empathically connected to. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are just two examples of, of, of sort of like counterintuitive ways where we don't really want to rely, or I don't think here, again, in editorializing, but where I don't think we really want to rely on our moral intuition. So I have a question that's kind of related to the physiological underpinning of all of this. So, you know, physiologically in the brain, um, when you're, when you encounter a scenario that involves your morality or empathy, what is, what is happening at a structural level? And are there differences in people's brains that cause some people to be more empathic than others or people to have slightly different morality frameworks than others? Um, and is that something that you're kind of looking at as, as a neuroscientist? That's the million dollar question. For sure. Um, yeah, like what are the what like what's what's going on in there that makes people, you know, more more empathic or, or not? Um, yeah, I would say there are, there are there are some studies that show, um, you know, the different different brain areas function and size could affect 
empathy, but it's it's a it's a sort of correlation, not causation. There's it's difficult to interpret it. I would say the the data just isn't quite there to to draw huge conclusions about you know what what would make someone more and empathic. But um, what I'm specifically focused on isn't brain areas, but um, psychophysiological activity. So measures like your heart rate, um, respiration, and something called skin conductance, which is basically like a measure of the activity of sweat glands, which is an index for bodily arousal. So like, you know, one example is like the fight or flight reflex. If, if, if you're startled for whatever reason, your sweat glands would become active and that's something we could measure. And, um, you know, you might imagine that in moral, moral dilemmas, certain moral dilemmas, people would become sort of, you know, autonomically aroused their their body would be you know kicked into high gear so to speak and you could measure that um so yeah to, to relate it to to the sort of methodology that i use one thing you do find is that um people who are um empathetic are, are more likely to show um like a psychophysiological response to seeing other people in distress so that's one signature of it. Like basically I see someone in pain or another, another, any sort of distress and, you know, my body react, reacts sort of instinctively to that. So that's just one signature of it. But again, yeah, it's, it's a really good question you asked. I, I would sure would like to know more about what does, what makes people more, more empathic. Well, I guess we'll have to have you on a, another time to <laughs> explore all of these issues uh, to a greater degree. Do you have any other additional questions? Um, I think that's, that's good. Yeah, yeah I think it's a, it's a great amount of information yeah. for um, our listeners and for us. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. And Yeah, we're yeah. curious just um, to give our listeners a little bit more information about you. Where can they go if they want to learn more about your work? Or, you know, where's the best way they can follow you to kind of is, I know you're not a huge fan of social media, but, um, <laughs> but I use it. Come on. Great, great. Um, would it, would, let's encourage our listeners to tread lightly, um, but where, where is it best to follow you, I guess? Um, uh, so you could, you could follow me on my website. It's uh, scott-koenig.com. Okay. Um, and yeah, on Twitter, um, reluctantly, uh, Scott T. Koenig. That's it. Perfect. Okay. And we'll link your um, your articles that you've written for Nautilus, um, as well as your website, onto our show notes. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much, Scott. Yeah. Enjoy the chat. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Okay. Right, care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. Don't forget to check out our website at imaginehuman.com for additional resources and links relevant to this episode, including Scott's neuroscience articles for Nautilus and link to his personal website. As always, we really appreciate your support, so don't forget to share with friends and family and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. We are always looking forward to meeting interesting people to interview for Imagine Human, so if you know someone, please contact us on social media or email us at imaginehuman17 at gmail.com.